0: just want to share a reading with you now that Margaret uh, has asked me to read. Um, it's really the interpretation of the parable of the sower that Jesus has shared with the disciples and the crowd and the many that, that had gathered around. So it's as he explains the, the parable that he has just preached. Taken from Luke chapter 8 verses 11 to 15. I think they're, yes, they're on the screen. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. May God bless the reading of his word.
1: I'm glad I saw that there were quite a few of you here before I was blinded by the lights, but it's all right. Leave the lights. I like it. Um, I've asked Morris to put up a picture that you've been looking at. Well, you should have been looking at for about a year. Orangefield, that's the name of our church. Disciples making disciples. I don't know who designed the logo, the little series of figures, but if you know, will you congratulate them? Because I think they did a very good job. Look at the figures again. They're all roughly the same size. In the church, we are not a hierarchy. Some people try to make it a hierarchy and some churches make it a hierarchy, but the Bible says we're all equal. Some of us have been Christians or disciples longer than others, but that doesn't give us any status or position. We are all equal. And in the job of disciples making disciples, we all have a part. An important part, but different parts. And whoever designed the logo has given different colors to the figures because we're all different in personality, in ability, in gifting, in spiritual gifting, in experience. But that doesn't make any of us better than the other. And you'll notice those figures are all linked. You see, the church is not just a group of individuals, it is a body. Bits that are linked together to make it work. Or a family, related. We talk about being born again. When we were born, Naturally, we were born into a family, and we'd no say about the family. And when we're born again, we're born into a Christian family. We're all linked. I hope you're still looking at the figures, but you notice they're not in a closed circle. The church is not an exclusive club for like-minded people. The figures at the end are reaching out their arms for they want others to join. You've probably guessed I'm talking about disciples making disciples. Let's pray. Father, That strapline came to us when we were working out what we believed your vision for our church was. Help us as we think about it tonight to learn something about discipleship and disciple-making. Through Christ, who is the one who calls disciples. The one who has called disciples for 2,000 years. And the one who still calls disciples. Amen. One thing I want to say about disciples, you are never complete we all still have L plates if we've been Christians for three years or thirty years or a lot more we all still have L plates and therefore we all still have something to learn this strapline came as you probably know From the verse at the end of Matthew 28, well, two or three verses, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey. Everything that I have commanded you. The main verb in the command about making disciples is that, make disciples. The go is a participle, just like the baptizing and the um, teaching. The main thing is make disciples. And how's it to be done? It's to be done as we go. We don't have to go to Cambodia. We could be in Castlereagh or Cameroon or Canada or anywhere else. But wherever we go, we're to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we are to teach all that Jesus commanded. Not a selective few pieces of information. All. All. And the baptism is obviously the public profession of faith of those who come to believe. I asked Gary to read the interpretation that Jesus gave to the parable of the sower. I was assuming that most of us, probably all of us, know that parable, When God's word is proclaimed, or shared, or read, Jesus says there are four possible reactions. The first one is people of whom it runs like water off a duck's back, nothing. They don't appear, at that stage at least, to have been impacted in any way. I want to focus on the next two groups. The ones on rocky ground who respond with joy. They were the only ones I noticed that responded with joy. Joy. They were ever so excited, this sounds great news, this is for me. But it said, if you listened carefully, they had no root. And when the going got tough, they gave up. Then there was another group, the Thorny Soil, where there were all these distractions And it appeared that worries and wealth and pleasures and all the things that we face in life and cope with in life distracted. And then there was the good soil. But the good soil didn't produce an instantaneous crop. It grew slowly And at the right speed, the only thing that grows fast, in my garden at least, is weeds. But this was good seed. It grew steadily. It said that the good soil, the word was retained, and by perseverance there was a crop. You see, there has to be ongoing receiving of the word and perseverance in what it says before there's a crop. Which of the people who responded were saved, were Christians, were converted, started on the path to discipleship? we don't really know. It could be that if the rocky soil and the thorny ground went on listening to the word of God, their soil would get a bit better and they too would become good soil. We can't really pronounce A is saved and B is not. What does Paul say to Timothy? The Lord knows those that are his. I must confess, I cringe when somebody announces X persons were saved at such and such an event. I always think, how do you know? They may have made professions. How do you know the people that didn't tell you anything? What happened to them? Maybe God was working in their hearts. I'm nervous of proclaiming A has been saved. A may have made a profession. And hopefully... It will be evident by the fruit in the days to come that A has come to a genuine faith. On our last trip to Kenya we met up with the worst sort of evangelism I have ever met and in my days I have met quite a few that I didn't think much of. And the couple of our members met a guy who said I've been saved four times and I'm not going to make the same mistake again. Years ago Billy Graham had rallies here and relays from Harringay and so on and I was a councillor quite often. And I met up with an awful lot of people in a mess who didn't know what they were doing. There was a nice lassie of about 15 or 16. And I said, and why have you come forward? Oh, she said, I've been saved three times and it doesn't work for me. Can you make it work? Well, of course I can't. But I said to her, what did you think was going to happen when you were saved? Oh, she said, I'd be forgiven and I'd go to heaven and not to hell. So far, so good. And I said, and what about the life you would live on earth? You're 15 and hopefully you'd live for a long time. What about that? Oh, I don't know. She was completely ignorant of what was involved in being a Christian. That's one reason why I like Christianity Explored and the Alpha Course, because they teach systematically through the scriptures so that people can understand and don't get into the mess that that poor lassie was in. I wonder, when did you last hear a talk on what it costs to be a Christian? Do we evangelize the Jesus way? Remember the man who came to Jesus and said, Lord, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And what did Jesus say? Great, and slap him on the back? Not at all. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to put his head. I think that was the end, at least for that time, of that young man's expression of wanting to follow. There is about a dozen verses at the end of Luke 14 that talk about the cost of discipleship. And if we evangelize the Jesus way, we won't leave that out. Because I think that's what's left out so often and causes so much ignorance, confusion, so many distractions. Jesus says, if you come to me, I've got to be more important to you than any of your family and friends and your closest ties. He actually, in Luke's version, says, Unless you hate your family, friends, etc., you cannot be my disciple. In other words, it's a figure of speech, it's hyperbole. Matthew puts it, If you love them more than me, you cannot be my disciple. And then Luke goes on and says, unless you take up your cross and follow me you cannot be my disciple you hear people say that's a little cross I have to bear but that's not what Jesus meant by a cross he who carried the cross to Calvary knew that a cross meant death Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but it's not I, it's Christ who lives in me. In other words, Christ is in charge. He is Lord. He is master. We have to say, no. We have to realize that we cannot have our way and Christ as Saviour and Lord. Later on in that portion at the end of Luke 14, Jesus says, whoever will not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. In other words, you cannot come to God with reservations. Another girl I tried to counsel long years ago came to me and said, I want to become a Christian. But there's one thing I'm not going to do. I'm not going to give up cigarettes or alcohol. What would you have said to her? I'll tell you what I said and you can decide whether you think it was right or not. I said, if you come to Jesus, he will become Savior and Lord. He will decide. I won't decide, and you won't decide. He will decide about your smoking and drinking habits. I can't say what he'll decide, but you cannot come with reservations. And we met an impasse. And she got no further at that time. I would like to think that she eventually got further, but I've no notion. Did I do the right thing? Discipleship, though, is more than evangelism. To make a disciple is an awful lot more than making a convert. But let's try and make sure that we don't mislead people, we don't water down our discipleship, and in our enthusiasm to get people as we think into the kingdom of God, we press for decisions in inverted commas. Because it's not just human decision. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Born again of the Spirit. Let's do it the Jesus way and make sure people are told to count the cost and not mislead them by pronouncing people saved when we don't actually know. Let's just stop for a moment of quiet. Think about evangelistic efforts. That may happen in your group, in churches, in Orangefield. Do we do it the Jesus way? The parable pointed out that. To get the crop, the word of God had to be retained, and there had to be perseverance. A disciple starts as a convert, whether or not he knows or she knows actually when that happens but the continuation has to be steady growth. Peter ends, I think it's his first letter, by saying, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Grow in grace and knowledge. Grace, the mercy, the love, what we receive from Christ in our relationship with Him. That relationship has to deepen and we have to learn to be in fellowship with Him, to receive from Him. Grow in grace and knowledge. The knowledge tells us maybe how we grow in grace. The understanding, they go together. Earlier in first letter of Peter, beginning of chapter 2, he says to the people who are reading his letter, as newborn babes desire pure spiritual milk, that you may grow up in your salvation. Food. The writer to the Hebrews sort of chides his readers. He's talking about preaching the word of God and he says, you still want me to give you milk. By this stage, you should be on to solid food. In fact, you should be able to teach others. A disciple is meant to grow. To not stay at the bottle stage. To get on to solid food. A disciple. Not a preacher, not a minister, not an evangelist, not a missionary. Well... All those, but not only those. Everybody needs to be able to explain and teach about the word of God. What did Paul say? He was talking to the Ephesian elders and he said, I have not hesitated to tell you or teach you anything that would be helpful to you. And later on in the same speech, she said, I have not hesitated to teach you the whole will of God. Maybe the first things are specifically geared to what he sees to be the needs of the people. And the second is the wider, the bigger, the broader picture. We need both. And how did he do his teaching? He, he makes it quite clear. I did it publicly and in homes. In other words, there's a place for a big meeting, like a church service or a, a conference or a, a public meeting where somebody speaks. There's also a place for the small group the people in the house. Think for a moment how people learn in each case. The speaker in the big meeting tries to say something that he believes or she believes God wants to communicate. And the speaker tries to do it in the best possible way. But the audience, like the audience in a church service, especially in a morning service, has all age groups and a whole variety of people, those who are already committed Christians and those who are not yet. It's hard to, maybe, be relevant to everybody. But it does give a good teaching foundation if we're prepared to learn and not just say, that had nothing to do with me. I'll come back to that in a moment. The small group is probably a better teaching Opportunity. If you didn't know, you can guess what I did when I was younger. Um, because people need to be able to ask questions, say when they don't understand, contribute. And that can happen in a small group. And people can pray one for the other as they share things. And all can learn from the others, not just the young ones learning from the older ones. We all have things to learn. And we can learn how to lead and how to teach in a small group situation. It's a false humility that says, oh no, I I just want to listen. Listen that's maybe all right at first. But if we want to learn and be disciples, we need to be involved. That's how people learn. But Paul also said to Timothy, a young man whom he had discipled, In a lot of ways. He said do your best. To show yourself. Approved to God. A workman who needn't be ashamed. Rightly handling. The word of God. Timothy had a personal. Responsibility. To sort out what God's word said. And what it meant, so that he didn't misinterpret it. Giving the context, giving the culture, seeing what principles were involved, and then applying those principles to today. Do your best. That's perseverance, it's effort. None of us takes on a job, no matter what sort of a job, without a little bit of training and learning. Sometimes it could be years. Our discipleship is for this life and the life to come. Do we give it the amount of effort we give to the job we do? There are all sorts of ways in which we can study God's word. There are books and thoughts where a verse is taken and somebody gives a thought on it. And that may be helpful and encouraging at the time. But we need the broader picture. We need to study God's word in books, in themes, in topics. And we need to teach people to do it. So don't rely just on a verse and somebody's blessed thought for that day, and it may bless you. And when you're reading something and some passages of scripture are quite difficult, you may say to yourself, This is pointless. Where am I getting to? And the person you're trying to help to do this may say the same to you. But what else did Paul say to Timothy? All scripture, just just the wee bits you like, all scripture is God breathed and is profitable for teaching for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God may be fully equipped for all good works. So how do we approach a sermon, say, that we don't feel is geared to us. Well, what was the teaching in it? Was there any teaching in it? We may not have seen a a rebuke, we may not have seen a correction, we may not have seen training, but was there teaching in it? It may not be relevant today, or tomorrow, or the week after next, but I can store it up in my mind. I think in all the ways in which we encounter God's word, we need to say, what is God saying to me? If we sit there passively, It'll maybe just roll off us like water off a duck, as it does for those who are not impacted at all. What is the teaching? Is God saying you're not doing something quite right? Something needs to change? Then we need to repent. Is there a correction? Is there a better way of doing something that we never thought of? How is this going to help me to develop in righteousness? And we need all of those, all four, to be fully equipped for all the good works that God has for us. So, we'll have another pause. Think for a moment What does God actually say to you from his word? Go back to what Peter said. Grow in grace, in receiving from the Lord, in listening to him, in hearing him, and in knowledge. In all that we do, in our discipling to grow ourselves and in our seeking to disciple others, we've got to be spiritually alert, and others have got to learn to be spiritually alert. I thought of John's seven letters, well, they weren't John's letters, they were the Lord's letters. To the seven churches in the Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. Each of them says, He that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Disciples making disciples was our strapline, as I like to call it, for our church. But the church is just, as I said, a group of individuals. And so what is said to the churches applies to individuals as well as to churches. There are seven churches. Two of them have a good report, they're going through a difficult time, they're encouraged, they're being persecuted very, very badly. They're facing a lot of opposition. I wonder, is that why they got a good report? Recently, the Archbishop of Joss Said, what Boko Haram has done in Nigeria isn't all bad. It's enabled the church to throw off decadent Western things and come back to the reality of Jesus. I found that challenging. two of them got a good report. Two of the churches had let false teachers get in and the result was not only error but immorality. They went astray. But I want to mention the other three. One was Ephesus. Now these churches have been in existence maybe 40 or 50 years Ephesus was doing an awful lot of good things. It had plenty of activity, plenty of good works, and they were commended for it. Nevertheless, so the Holy Spirit said, I have this against you. You have left, forsaken, your first love. In other words, the activity, the good things started as a result of love for the Lord. And they continued as an end in themselves. And the Lord may have been left out. That is a danger, I think, for individuals who've been Christians quite a while. For churches... Churches like Orangefield, who have so much activity. Where is our first love? And then there was Sardis. Sardis had a reputation for being alive. And what did the Holy Spirit say? You're dead. Now there were a few people he did say that were alive but there was very little life left. You see Sardis was living on a past reputation. Could that be Orangefield? Could that be you and me? Were, have we the name for being devoted, mature Christians when the reality is no longer there? Orangefield has a reputation for being evangelical. It probably still is, I hope. It used to have a reputation for being generous. It used to have a reputation for being missionary minded. I know we've had the joy of seeing so many people go out on short term mission. But missionary minded is more than short term mission. Short-term mission is a beginning, a taster. Maybe it'll develop again. You have a reputation for being alive, but are dead. Could that be us? Could that be you or me? Have we lost the spiritual life, as it were, And vitality and rested on our reputation. And perhaps the worst of the lot, Laodicea, you're lukewarm. And they said, We need nothing, utter complacency. And what did Jesus say? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You're meant to be a church, and Jesus isn't inside. And what did the Spirit say to all the churches? Repent. Repentance is something we usually Start the Christian life with. But if repentance finishes there, we'll never become the disciples we should be, and we'll never help others to grow. So, another thought. Are you, am I, a disciple? Making disciples is our church, Orangefield, a church of disciples making disciples. Think for a moment. The song we're going to close with is a prayer. So I'd like the worship team to come up, please. But it's not a prayer designed for the close of a service, but it was the best I could find. And I feel it could be a prayer to help us move forward in our discipleship and in our discipling. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy words. Sorry, go on playing. Take your truth, plant it deep within. Shape and fashion us in your likeness. And it ends up. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Let us stand and pray as we sing.